Good morning. It's the first day of spring, so good to see you. It's glad to be, I'm glad to be back in this auditorium uh, and uh, looking forward to being with you today. Already have enjoyed being with you. Uh, John chapter 19, take your Bible, find your way to John 19. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Uh, by the way, if, you, uh, if this is your first time here with us today, we are really glad that you've chosen to worship with us. You've got lots of great choices of churches in Greenville. We're glad that you've uh, chosen to be here. It, uh, one of the things that we would want you to know about us is if you uh, come here and to, or tune in on a weekly basis, most often you'll find that we are teaching our way through whole books of the Bible. And for over a year now, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. And in these weeks leading up to Easter, we planned things out so that we would be right here in John 18 and 19 uh, at this particular time because these two chapters uh, tell us about Jesus' journey to the cross, his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his suffering, and death on the cross. And so far we've looked at how Jesus was betrayed by Judas, how he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We've looked at how at the very time Jesus was inside being interrogated by the Jewish religious uh, leaders that Peter was on the outside being questioned about being a follower of Jesus, which he denied. We've looked at uh, how Jesus was questioned by Pilate and how Pilate said three or four times, I find no guilt in this man, but we also saw how he ultimately caved into the pressure from the Jewish religious leaders to have him crucified. And so today we stand at the foot of the cross and we see how the Prince of Glory died to make our forgiveness possible. And I tell you, uh, just like Moses stood in front of the burning bush and he was so awestruck by what he was witnessing, he took off his uh, shoes because it was uh, holy ground. I feel like somehow when we come to this particular passage, we need to do something similar uh, in our hearts. We, we need to stand before this passage with a sense of awe with the sense of the glory and the gravity of this passage. And maybe the best way for us to do that this morning would be for us to stand. So I'm going to invite you to stand. I know you just got settled in, but uh, we need to stand before the Word of God. Let's read through the passage, and then we'll come back and work our way through it. John chapter 19, verse 17, So they took Jesus... And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with, with him two others on either side, Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that it was all now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. You can be seated now. You know, uh, when you think of the cross, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? I think if we were to go do a survey on the streets of uh, downtown Greenville, and we were to ask uh, just a passerby, uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the cross? That person might say, oh, I don't know, uh, maybe a church or a church steeple or a, a part of a logo for a church, or maybe that person would say a gold necklace or gold or silver earrings, or they may, might say something uh, completely different like uh, blue cross, blue shield, or the red cross. My point is today the cross has become so familiar that many people, uh, too many people, it's little more than just a personal or an organizational decoration. But in the ancient world, the cross struck terror in the heart of anyone who thought about it. Uh, Roman philosopher and statesman Cicero said that the cross was the most cruel and horrifying death. And the Roman historian Tacitus said it was a despicable death. Roman citizens, no matter what their crimes, were never crucified. It was considered too undignified for a citizen of Rome. The cross was reserved for slaves and for criminals. Roman citizens were beheaded. Uh, the form of, uh, Jewish form of capital punishment was stoning. Deuteronomy uh, said that anyone who was hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now, actually, crucifixion predates the Romans by several hundred years, uh, probably invented by the Persians. According to a journalist Jim Bishop, the inventors of this terrible method of execution designed crucifixion as the way to inflict the maximum amount of pain on a convicted criminal before death. He writes, they had death by spear, by boiling in oil, impalement, stoning, strangulation, drowning, burning, and all had been found to be too quick. They wanted a means of punishing criminals slowly, so man devised the cross. It was almost ideal because in its original form, it was as slow as it was painful. And the condemned at the same time were placed fairly before the public gaze of all the people. The second consideration was nudity. This added to the shame of the evildoer and at the same time, made him helpless before the thousands of insects in the air. The Romans adopted the cross as a means of deterring crime, and they had faith in it. In time, they reduced it to an exact science, 
with a set of rules to be followed. So crucifixion was designed to be a horribly painful, humiliating, lingering death. And so for people in the first century to use the cross as a symbol of faith would have been unthinkable. It would be like wearing a hangman's noose on a chain around your neck or or framing uh, an artist's rendering of an electric chair and, and hanging it on your living room wall. And, and for the first 300 years after the death of Christ, the early church fathers did not allow the cross to be depicted in art. All of that changed under the emperor uh, Constantine. On the, the verge of a great battle, Constantine saw a vision of the cross in the sky, and he pledged his loyalty to Christ He won the battle, so he declared Christianity to be the state religion, and he banned crucifixion as a method of execution. According to historian Michael Grant, however, Constantine had little interest in the person of Jesus himself, and he found the cross to be an embarrassment. He goes on to say that Constantine saw the cross not so much as an emblem of suffering and shame, but as a magic totem confirming his own power and might. And so he transformed the cross from a symbol of sacrificial love and humiliation into, the, into a symbol of military triumph and victory. And he had it painted on the shields of his soldiers, and his armies waged war under the banner of the cross, which was the worst sacrilege imaginable. So it wasn't until the fourth century that the cross became a symbol of faith but even then, not in the way it is uh, today. Philip Yancey writes, today the symbol of, of the cross is everywhere. Artists beat gold into the shape of a Roman execution device. Baseball players cross themselves before batting. And candy confectioners even make chocolate crosses for the faithful to eat during Holy Week. Strange as it may seem, Christianity has become a religion of the cross the gallows, the electric chair, the gas chamber in modern terms. I mean, can you imagine singing, you know, on a hill far away stood a cold electric chair? Or or when I survey the firing squad, or there's room in the gas chamber for you, or at the noose, at the noose where I first saw the light. I mean, it sounds strange, and that is the point. So what makes this execution rack something we honor? Why is it something we sing about in hymns? Well, it's because of the person who hung there. Jesus died on that cross. And by his death through crucifixion, he transformed that instrument of execution into an instrument of salvation. So as followers of Jesus, we can never make too much out of the cross. Now, here in John 19, as we stand at the foot of the cross, the interesting thing is John does not go into detail about Jesus' crucifixion. At first reading, it's all kind of matter of fact, not many details. But John does allow us to kind of picture in our minds what happened. Before being nailed to the cross, Jesus was flogged in the usual Roman manner with a whip that probably had... Uh, small shards of broken glass and pottery and metal woven into it. And then Jesus was forced to carry his cross at least partway from Pilate's judgment hall to a hill outside Jerusalem that everyone called the place of a skull, 
or Golgotha. Uh, and, and we often call it Calvary. Now, by the way, when you go to Israel with us, you'll, you'll see this hill that many scholars and archaeologists believe is the place of the skull, and, and here's why. Um, you can tell right away, I mean, this looks like a, a skull. Now, the Catholic Church, Constantine's mother, Helena, um, she went to the Holy Land around 350 A.D., and she thinks it's somewhere else, and there's a Catholic Church built over that site. But a lot of people believe this is the site. Now, uh, there, I, I'm going to digress just a, a little bit here, but there's an interesting story behind this particular photograph. Jesus was likely crucified up on the hill there, and at the base of the hill today, uh, there's a very popular roadway that people travel as they're going and coming, and they crucified Jesus on top of the hill because they wanted it to be public. They wanted criminals uh, to be seen by the passers-by. Now, today, at the top of the hill is a Muslim graveyard, and Christians cannot go there. And the reason is, you can see at the very bottom, you see the bottom of some, uh, or you see the tops of buses, and because in front of uh, Golgotha, they built a large bus transfer station, so you can't get a clear view uh, or a great photo of Golgotha, and because they built this bus station there in front of it, and packed it full of buses, and so Christians can't get to it from the front or the top. We're excluded uh, from the hill the place of Jesus' uh, crucifixion. Now, this particular photo was taken by a pastor friend of mine, and, uh, and getting the photo was quite an ordeal. Uh, the pastor went to the bus transfer station, and he walked in, and there were a lot of, lot of people coming and going, and there was a long chain-link fence in the back, and at the top, across it, uh, was uh, barbed wire, and you just couldn't get any, anywhere near uh, Golgotha. And so he says to one of the guys that work there, he says, I really want to get to the roof and take a picture. And uh, the guy was like, I'm sorry, we don't allow anyone on the roof. No one has ever been on the roof, to my knowledge, and no one is allowed to take a picture. And he said, well, who's your boss? Take me to your boss. And so the guy goes out, brings his boss in. And, uh, and so the pastor says, I'm a pastor from America. I want to get a picture of Golgotha uh, he says, uh, I think Christians have a right to see where Jesus died. And the guy says, well, I'm a Muslim. I'm not a Christian. Now get this. The guy says, but God told me in a dream last night that you were coming. And he said, so if you're the holy man, follow me. And the pastor said, he thought to himself, I'm not sure I'm the holy man, but I'll follow you, especially if God gave you a dream last night that said I was coming to take a picture. So the guy says, well, come on, let's hurry, hurry. We have to hurry because he didn't want to be caught. So the pastor follows the guy into a back office. They go, through some, uh, go up some rickety uh, little back stairs through something like a, a, an office or a closet that had a fire ladder to the roof. And so he gets on the roof and he takes this picture, a clear shot of uh, Golgotha, and the official's like, okay, okay, hurry, 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 we got to get down, we've got to go, we got to go. And the pastor says, do you know what happened on that hill? And he said, uh, we murdered God there. And the official said, we need to go. And the pastor said, no, no, you need to hear about Jesus. And sa he said, you work here, and you don't know the story. Every day, 
you're looking at the place where God demonstrated his love to you in the most amazing and horrifying way, and you don't know the story. You need to know the story. So he took a moment, and he shared the gospel with this Muslim official on top of the roof of the bus station looking at Calvary. And he got to plant the seed that day, but there was no harvest at that time. But to my thinking, if God could give this guy a dream that a holy man was coming to take a picture, he could send another person uh, to, uh, to water and uh, ultimately harvest the, the guy. So that's the story behind the photo. Now, here's another st- photo taken about 120 years ago. And you can see the road uh, at the base of, of the hill. And I think that this picture would have been very close to what it looked like in Jesus' day. So, you get the picture? So, okay, back to John's story without a lot of details. So, next, after talking about Jesus being on the hill, next John tells us in verse 18 that they came to this place of the skull and Jesus was crucified with two thieves, one on each side. Again, no details, one verse about the crucifixion. And the scenes that follow show the utter indifference to Jesus' suffering. I mean, first we see the Jewish religious leaders arguing with Pilate over the inscription that Pilate had attached to the placard on top of the cross. Then we see the soldiers acting like this is just another crucifixion. They uh, nonchalantly are gambling away Jesus' clothing. And here are a couple of um, ancient artist renderings to help you visualize the scene. This is a cross from the distance, and I like this because I think the artist got it right. There would be huge crowds of people passing by on the road, some of them stopping to look and mock and jeer and ridicule Jesus, some of them just walking by, not paying any attention at all. And then here's the picture of the cross up close. And Karen and I uh, saw this picture in a museum in Budapest when we were there in the fall of 2019. And notice in the lower right-hand corner, the soldiers are dividing up Jesus' clothes, and they're gambling for the tunic. And behind them, you can see there's a, there are some religious leaders, and one is pointing to the placard on top of the cross. And then over on the lower left-hand side, uh, John focuses on the women And there's three Marys there, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, uh, Jesus' aunt, who was the wife of Clopas, and then the other Mary, Mary Magdalene. There were three Marys, and I'm sure there were other women there as well, but those are the ones that John mentions. So then, in verses 26 and 27, uh, John tells us that Jesus asked John to take care of his mother. In verses 28 and 29, John tells us that Jesus is thirsty, and someone gives him sour wine to drink. And then in verse 30, it says that Jesus says, it's finished, he dies, and that's all John tells us. I mean, do you see how brief and nondescript all this is? Now, a writer always has a purpose in mind when he or she tells a story. A writer tells you things that he wants you to know in order to make a certain point. And so John gives us this very brief description of the actual crucifixion, one verse about the crucifixion itself. But strangely, he spends about eight verses, uh, much more time, painting a picture of the overall scene around uh, the cross, what it looks like, what it would have been like to be there in the crowd looking up at Jesus. Now, the question is why? Why does John tell us 
these few things? Why these few details? What's the point that he's trying to make? What does he want us to see in that picture right there? So John says at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, that he tells us what he tells us about Jesus so that we will anchor our faith in Jesus as the one and only Son of God sent from heaven to rescue us from our sins and to bring us into relationship with God. That's my paraphrase of of his his simple uh, verse there. But um, John paints this big picture scene around the cross so that the picture will forever be anchored in our mind's eye. And then he highlights three statements that Jesus makes from the cross so that they will forever echo in our ears. I think John wants us to hear three of the seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross because for John, his main point is heard in what Jesus says. Now, if you combine all the gospel accounts into one, you'll hear Jesus make seven statements from the cross, and here they are in order. First, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I thirst, it is finished. And Father, into, my, into thy hands I commend my spirit. So you notice how John only includes statements 3, 5, and 6 in how he tells the story of Jesus. So I take it that these three sayings must be very important to John, very important to John's purpose in writing his gospel. So what are we supposed to take away from the three sayings? What do these three things tell us about Jesus that John hopes will give us greater faith in Jesus. So we're going to look at these three things, and we're going to unpack them, all right? First saying, woman, here's your son. John, here is your mother. Now, he doesn't say John. He's talking about, you know, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, as if Jesus didn't love anybody but him. That's between him and his Lord. But anyway, uh, Jesus looks down from the cross. He sees Mary, his mother, and he sees John, one of his closest friends and disciples standing beside her, and he says, woman, here is your son, your son John. John, here is your mother. All right, so what's going on here? Well, this is actually quite significant, and I could preach a whole sermon just on this, but I'll save that for another time. But here's what he's doing. You have to remember that back in the day, uh, this is a time when there were no nursing homes, no assisted living, no Social Security, no pensions, no Medicare, no Medicaid. They haven't built Florida yet. All right. So when you had a widowed elderly mother, the only way she could survive was if one of her grown children took her in. Mary was a widow. Joseph, we know, had died sometime earlier. We don't know when. But since Jesus was the oldest son, she would have been living with Jesus because it would be his responsibility to care for her. And he's been taking care of her, but now he's about to die, and he wants to make sure that she's cared for. Which that just blows my mind. I mean, he Jesus is hanging there in horrible pain and anguish. I mean, he's barely able to breathe. And he has the presence of mind to be thinking more about his mother than himself. He's surrounded by indifference. But he is not indifferent to his mother's suffering 
and her future care. So he looks down from the cross and he asks John to take care of her. Now, but, but wait a minute, I mean, culturally, who should be taking care of her? Well, his brothers, one of his brothers should be taking care of her. John chapter 7 tells us that he had a bunch of brothers. But it also tells us that his brothers didn't believe in him. So what Jesus is saying is, Mother, John, at the foot of the cross, all your relationships change. In other words, from God's perspective, you are closer to your brothers and sisters in Christ than to unbelieving family members. Jesus says the cross so completely changes you that the relationships that you have with other believers are now the strongest relationships you have. Because the cross brings you into the family of God. The cross puts you in a, a new community. Now, everybody reads the Bible through a, a cultural lens, no matter if you're from North America or the United States or China or wherever you are, you read through a cultural lens. And that means when we read the Bible, because we have this cultural uh, lens, this filter, we filter out a lot of things, the Bible says, that don't fit with our cultural mindset. And one of the cultural filters that we have adopted is individualism. We live in a very individualistic culture, American individualism, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it can get in the way of the gospel. Like when we come to the cross, it's not uncommon for us to say, to say I want to know how the cross will, will satisfy me. I want to know how the cross will make me happy. I want to know how the cross will make me feel better about myself and, and just about life in general. We tend to look at the cross only through the filter of my personal relationship with God. That's because of this American cultural filter of individualism. But the Bible says once the cross comes into your life, it utterly changes your relationships with everyone. The cross means you no longer belong to yourself. You no longer live for yourself. You are now a part of the family of God. And that means that your social status doesn't matter like it used to. Your family name doesn't matter like it used to. Your race, your ethnicity, your nationality doesn't matter like it used to. Which means, again, that my relationships with other Christians now become the strongest relationships in my life. And if you don't feel that way today, or if you've never felt that way, it's because you don't understand how the cross changes everything. You see, the, the cross is about a whole lot more than just God loves me, God forgives me. Those things are extremely important. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. But the cross is about more than those things because the cross is not, it's not just about you. It's about you and other people and how you relate to them. So from the cross, Jesus says to you and me, look at how far I will go to make you my own. Look at how far I will go to make you a part of my family. Look at how far I have gone to make you brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in my family. The point is the cross reorders all your relationships. The cross, not culture, not race, not socioeconomic class, not politics, not even family. The cross defines who I am to you and who you are to me. 
the most significant relationships you have as believers are with other believers. The cross defines all of your relationships. Now, the second thing that Jesus says from the cross is in verse 28, he says, I thirst. Look at verse 28, he says, after this, in other words, after Jesus asked John to take care of his mother, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And I, I tell you, there's so much packed in here, I could do a whole message on this as well. Uh, now, Jesus knew, we know, we know this from John 17, 4, Jesus knew that he had done all that the Father had, had sent him to do, and he knew Scripture. Now, what Scripture is he talking about here, it is John reminding us of here in verse 28? Well, clearly, the scripture is Psalm 22, and, and if I was doing a whole message on this, we would go back to Psalm 22 and unpack it, so I encourage you to go back and read Psalm 22, because Psalm 22 begins with the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, that should sound familiar. I mean, that we, we looked at that. That's one of the other seven sayings. Psalm 22 is a great messianic psalm written by King David. And if you read the entire psalm, you see that this psalm could not be David's own personal testimony. For one, David never went through anything quite like this. And second, it's clearly a picture of a public execution. Someone is dying a slow, painful, shameful death. And Psalm 22 pretty much paints the exact same picture that John paints for us here in chapter 19, except it's in a, a little bit more poetic form. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before the crucifixion, before there was even crucifixion. And it talks about a mocking crowd standing around a dying man. It mentions how the man's hands and feet were pierced. Uh, it talks about how a group of people divide the dying man's garments and cast lots for his cloak. The, and, and in verse uh, 20, uh, it's the exact, the exact same verse John quotes in verse 24, Psalm 18, about casting lots. That comes from Psalm 22. And so Jesus, knowing this psalm, specifically the 15th verse of the psalm, which says, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. He knows that psalm, and he says, I thirst. Not just to fulfill Scripture. It's not like Jesus is hanging there, and he goes, oh, it's time for me to quote another Scripture. No, no, no. It's, he's, he's, the, the Scripture was being fulfilled in him at that very moment. His mouth was as dry as a broken piece of pottery laying out in the hot sun. His tongue was swollen and sticking to the roof of his mouth. But it's not just that Jesus was physically thirsty. There's a double meaning here. More than any other gospel writer, John loves symbolism. He quotes Jesus saying things like, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd, I'm the true vine. He quotes Jesus as saying, I can give you living water, so if you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. So we know that when Jesus says, I thirst, yes, there's a literal, physical meaning, but there's also a symbolic, spiritual meaning as well. John wants us to see the humanity of Jesus 
He wants us to see that Jesus is experiencing every excruciating pain that we would feel if we had been nailed to that cross. He wants, but he also wants us to see something else. On a, he wants us to see what Jesus is going through on a spiritual level. He wants us to see that Jesus is experiencing the ultimate thirst that comes from the fact that now, for the first time in his life, Jesus is separated from his Father in heaven. The other gospel writers tell us that just before this, Jesus did make that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which comes from Psalm 22, verse 1, like I said. So Jesus, at this point, he's bearing the weight of our sin, and he feels separated from his Father. And on the cross, Jesus was getting what the whole human race deserved for all its evil. He was getting what everybody deserved for all their sins. And it was like a million suns beating down on him because he was experiencing the searing heat of divine justice. So you know what he's doing? He's thirsting so that we could have living water. He was made thirsty so we will never thirst again. It's the fulfillment of what Jesus promised the Samaritan woman at the well in, back in John chapter 4 when, he said, when Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I give them will never be thirsty again. And he's dying of spiritual thirst so we would never thirst for God again. He's experiencing the agony of an eternity without God. He's being separated from God the fountain of living waters, so that we could drink the living water and live. It's symbolic language. He's paying for our sins. He's taking God's wrath into himself so that it would not fall on us. He's thirsting so we who would believe in him will never be thirsty for God again. Has he quenched your thirst? Have you found in him the soul-satisfying living water springing up to eternal life. He's saying, I was made thirsty for you so that you would thirst for God no more. And if you don't know that great good news, then the third thing he says can take you home. He says in verse 30, it is finished. Now, I could easily preach a whole series of messages just on this one word. The last thing that John wants us to hear from Jesus is this one word. You say, well, it's three words, not in the Greek. One word, tetelestai. And it's a word that means totally paid. It's a word that you would write across a bill that has been paid, like a mortgage. Now, with a mortgage, you're expected to make monthly payments for the life of the loan. But if you manage to pay off that mortgage, the loan officer would write across the bill to Telestai, paid in full. You owe nothing more. Your, your, your payments are finished, complete. It's accomplished. The loan is accomplished. You owe nothing else. And if I could summarize in Christ, Christianity in one word, it would be this word, to Telestai. It is finished. Now, this is one of the amazing paradoxes of history, of the gospel. And, and, and here it is, Jesus, who by the world's standards, by all standards, he's absolutely helpless. He is totally defenseless. He's weak. 
He's powerless. His hands and feet are nailed to the cross. He can barely speak. He can barely breathe. He can't move. And as he dies in this incredibly helpless state, his last words are, I've done it. I did it. I've accomplished it. I've triumphed. This is not a sigh. I'm finished. No, it's a shout of victory. I've accomplished it. What did he accomplish? 1 Peter 3.18 puts it this way, for Christ died for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. Here's what he's saying. Hanging here on the cross, I've bridged the gap between you and God. I've done everything that there is to do to bring you to God. I've accomplished what God sent me to accomplish. I've finished the work that he gave me to do. Now there is nothing more for you to do. Now you contrast that with the last words of Buddha. It is said that the last words of Buddha were strive without ceasing. And if you know anything about the eightfold path of Buddhism, which I don't know a lot, but I just know a little, but it mostly centers around rigorous self-denial and the recognition that self-centeredness is what's wrong with us, which that's not inconsistent with the gospel. But the eightfold path to enlightenment or the eightfold path to salvation, it's incredibly hard. It is unbelievably demanding. And that's the reason why the last words of the Buddha were, if you want salvation, you must never stop striving. Strive without ceasing. Now, the last words of Jesus were exactly the opposite. He says, I've done all the striving for you. I've done everything that needed to be done to bring you to God, to gift you salvation. Buddha says, strive without ceasing. Jesus says, cease striving and trust me. You see, religion is in order to. Religion is you try hard to be good and do good in order to get God's blessing. Religion is striving to earn God's favor. The gospel is because of. Because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, God blesses you with the salvation that comes by faith. And then out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you, you devote your life to passionately pursuing life and mission with Jesus. Religion is you do in order to get God's blessing. The gospel is because of what Jesus has done for you, you get God's blessing by faith, and then you live for him out of gratitude. The cross teaches us you can earn nothing. You deserve nothing. You strive for nothing, but you receive everything by grace through faith in Jesus. Now think, how foolish would it be if You paid off your mortgage, but just to make doubly sure that the creditors won't come after you, you continue making payments. I mean, this would be ridiculous. It'd be crazy. I mean, any effort on your part to pay for what has been paid for would just be crazy. Religion says, finish the work, and maybe someday God will accept you and bless you. Jesus says, it's finished. I've done it all for you. Now, let me ask you, do you believe that? We say we do, but sometimes we act like we don't. Sometimes we act like we, what do I mean by that? Well, there are two ways to believe something. 
Like I remember years ago, I was in college. I was riding in a friend's yellow Volkswagen Super Beetle, and my friend was driving without a seatbelt, and I said something like, hey, you know, you, you really ought to fasten your seatbelt, and I said a few more things, and he said, yeah, 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 I know, I know. Seatbelts save lives. I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then sometime later, I don't know how many months it was, uh, but I was riding with him again, same car, and I noticed that he had a seatbelt on. And so I say to him, uh, so I see you're wearing your seatbelt now. What, what changed? And he said, well, a family member of mine was in a serious uh, car accident, and he got really banged up, had some serious head injuries and some broken bones. And so now I always wear my seatbelt. Now you think about that. When he wasn't wearing his seatbelt, he believed that seatbelts save lives. But his belief was not compelling. His belief was not life-changing. But he believed, but he didn't believe. And that was true until he had had a personal encounter with how important it is to wear a seatbelt. You see, it's one thing to say, I believe Jesus finished the work on the cross. It's another thing to know it and to believe it and let it change your life. There are Christians who believe, yes, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. They believe it, but they don't believe it. Like in the very first church I pastored out of seminary, I, I was trying to get to know church members, and I was visiting some shut-ins, and I remember um, I, I would usually go to the shut-ins, and at some point I'd say, hey, do you know for sure that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? And a lot of them would say, I hope so. They hoped so, but they didn't know so. And, uh, and, and it's like here they are at the end of their life, and, and they look back, as they look back over their life, they have regrets. And some of them had deep regrets. There were things that if they could go back in time and do things differently, they would have gone back and done them differently. But, of course, you can't go back. You're at your end of your life, and, 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 you're, and you have these things on your mind all the time, and they had regrets, and they felt guilty, and that made them very anxious about their future. And I asked one hope-so older lady, I said, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to forgive your sins and make you right with God? And she said yes, and she was a Green Bay Packer fan. She had like a cheese head sitting over on a, on a table, and, and, uh, and she said yes, but isn't it like Jesus gets you onto the ball field, but then you got to run the ball to the goal line. I, I don't feel like I've done a good job getting the ball over the goal line. I fumbled it so many times. And I said, no, it's not like that at all. It's like Jesus has won the game for you, and all you have to do is enjoy being on the winning team. See, there's a lot of people like that. They say, yes, I believe Jesus has forgiven me of my sins, but they just can't seem to forgive themselves. And they keep beating themselves up for past mistakes. Is that you? Are you like every time somebody criticizes you, you're, you're devastated and you just beat yourself up? Are you like every time you do something wrong or you make a mistake, you beat yourself up? Maybe you did something wrong five years ago and you just can't get past it. And it's always, it's always there in the back of your mind. And, 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 and you can't pray, and you can't, you can't have peace, and you're depressed, and you despair, and you just keep beating yourself up. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I was beaten up for you. Are you telling me that's not good enough? 
He's saying, I was scourged for you. I paid for your sins. Why are you still trying to pay for them? It is finished. You see, it's, it, it, to try to add anything to what Jesus has done for you is to subtract from it. The problem is you can't forgive yourself because you don't really believe it's finished. You're like, if I hate myself enough, if I knock myself down enough, if I put myself down enough, if I feel bad enough, then maybe God will see that I'm really sorry and he'll have pity on me. No. Jesus says, how dare you hate yourself? How dare you not forgive yourself when I, your Lord and Savior, have died to secure your forgiveness and I have forgiven you of all your sins, past, present, and future. That's like trying to pay off an already paid off mortgage. It makes no sense. It is finished. Look at the cross. If you're beating yourself up, if you can't forgive yourself, you're just not taking the cross seriously enough. You're not taking what Jesus had done for you seriously enough. You believe, but you don't believe. If you can't forgive yourself, you don't know it's finished. And the opposite is true, too. If you can't forgive others, you don't know it's finished. If you can't forgive others, you're saying, well, I'm not perfect, but look how good I am. I mean, I believe the right things. I do the right things. I'm living right. Look, no, you don't know it's finished. If you knew it was finished... If you knew your only hope was the finished work of Christ, you would never allow one ounce of that self-righteousness, that self-perceived moral superiority to stick in your heart. Because you see, rigid people and proud Christians and condemning, judgmental Christians, you don't know it's finished either. You don't know it's finished. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The gospel is we are sinners saved by grace. It takes the same amount of blood to cover my sins as it does the worst murderer out there. And the gospel is you are more sinful than you ever dared believe and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. Listen, until you see that it is finished and you stop acting as if Jesus' death was something that kind of made a contribution to your salvation, but you have to finish it, you'll never be able to forgive yourself. You'll be hard on yourself, and you'll never be able to forgive other people, and you'll be hard on the people who sin against you. Sure, you believe in forgiveness, but you don't take it seriously enough to let it change your life. You believe, but you don't really believe. Listen, you've got to make Jesus' death on the cross so personal to you that no way would you ever not forgive yourself. And no way would you ever not forgive someone who's hurt you. When Jesus says, it is finished, it is finished. It is finished. And that needs to echo in our ears during this Easter season. And it needs to echo in our ears 
as we come to the Lord's table today. Um, if you have not got one of our little um, cups with the juice and the uh, bread, they're in the back, and feel free to stand up now and go get them. If you're uh, watching online, this would be an opportunity for you to go gather the supplies you need to receive communion along with us, and so you can do that now. And uh, we're going to sing, and then Johnny and Matt will lead us in taking these elements. And I am so glad that we are having communion today because Jesus tells us to remember him in his broken body and his shed blood. And it is these elements that have made it possible for him to shout and you to shout with joy, it is finished. It's finished.